from the book of Exodus, the 19th chapter. I'd like to read the first five verses with you. The purpose for reading these verses will become apparent as we make a connection, I think, with a biblical truth, a doctrinal truth, that has, I, I, I believe, a very uh, important life-directing applications. The nation of Israel, as you know, was led out of Egypt in a unique and important way. It was the only time in history where an entire slave people were given their freedom all at once. And we're talking about a large number of them. It's never happened before like that. And once they were given their freedom, they were also given a leader to lead them from their place of bondage to a place of comfort. The problem, as I am sure all of you know by now, is that the people who were the ones who were let out of Egypt went for a long time before they found any comfort, and some never did. Now, that's an important thing to observe because their discomfort was based upon the way God dealt with them according to his promises. Now you have to pay really close attention tonight because we're going to make a, a comparison, really, uh, about the promises of God. The Bible has a great deal to say about the promises of God. In the third month, verse 1, 19 Exodus, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed, departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai, and had pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now let's stop there and let's pray. Now, Father and God in heaven, we, as we approach you this evening, we, we do so in, in fear and in love. We revere your name and we love your holy being. I pray now, Holy Spirit of God, that you would instruct us tonight in such a way so as we will be a different people leaving here from what we were when we came here. And might it be through the powerful application of your word upon our minds and upon our hearts that we might indeed be acknowledged as your people here while we yet walk this perilous pilgrim pathway 
Until that time, we shall stand in your presence rejoicing. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The reason I ask you to turn to Exodus first is because I want you to notice how conditional the promise was that God gave to the children of Israel. Verse 5, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. The conditions that God laid down for Israel being his people were conditions which were given before the promise was made. Now, of course, we live in a time and under a covenant which is very different from that today. In fact, quite the reverse is true. The promise is given first before any of the conditions are placed upon it. That's directly opposite from what we have read here. And I would like to speak to you this evening about the promises of God, and particularly what I'd like to speak to you about the covenant under which we live. I was struck when I was doing a little reading about the uh, history of our people as I was studying for our Sunday morning uh, sermon in the book of Acts. And I noticed it wasn't very difficult to come across this in many uh, Baptist writings, that one of the peculiar marks of a New Testament Baptist church is that it, it embraces the scriptures and it only as its rule and guide of faith. And I noticed at least two men, that, and I didn't read a lot of them, but, but at least two of them said, and insofar as our rule and guide of faith is concerned, New Testament Baptists engage only and embrace only the New Testament scriptures and reserve the Old Testament scriptures for historical applications and practical applications of life. But doctrinally, we are New Testament people. And the reason why we are New Testament people, because testament is a biblical word which is synonymous with covenant or, or promise. And, and we, are, we, we are operating, we are living, our hope is because of the new covenant, not because of the one we just read about. If you will obey my voice, then you will be my people, is the old covenant. It's one of condition based upon promise. Now, I would like for you to turn back to the book of Hebrews, which is where we will remain for uh, the rest of our time this evening in the scriptures, the 8th chapter. We'll look at starting with the 6th verse, and let me just preface the beginning of the reading of the 6th verse through the end of the chapter, or at least, uh, yeah, through the end of the chapter, starting with verse 6. Prior to the 6th verse, uh, the writer, the Holy Spirit, and Arably inspired writer, is simply stating that what existed prior to Christ in terms of uh, Hebraic uh, Old Testament exercises religious exercises, exercises of the priest and of the covenants and of the, um, the laying on of hands to transfer sin and, and all of those exercises that were under the first covenant, uh, meaning that you know, if, you, if you did everything right, God would embrace you as his. 
he's making the comparison between that covenant, the covenant of conditions, the promise of conditions, if you do this, I will do that for you, conditions. And he's saying, now we have a new one, a different one, and, and uh, we have a more excellent covenant, a more excellent ministry, and, and the one who is being referred to in, in the sixth verse is the Lord Jesus Christ as vis-a-vis uh, -vis Moses. We, Moses is being held up as the mediator of the old covenant, and Jesus Christ is being held up as the mediator of the new covenant, the priest. But now he, that is Christ, uh, now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. For it, if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and say, uh, and, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their, and their iniquities while I remember no more. And that he saith, a new covenant he hath made, the uh, first he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. And just a couple of observations here. I don't want you to think that the idea of God making promises before exacting action is unique to the New Testament. I know it may sound contradictory in the face of what I just said a few moments ago, but I'm sure you're aware, many of you at least, of the person of Abraham. Abraham was also given a covenant. It's identical to the covenant under which we live, meaning that God said to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a, a, a great people. I am, I'm going to be your father. I'm going to be, he didn't say, I'm going to be your God. And and uh, he said, and now go. And so he made the promise first and, and, and asked for obedience, demanded obedience, really, but it was in, in the way of uh, a demand that was not conditioned upon his keep, God keeping his promise. It, it's important that we understand that when God makes promises, and he makes them without condition, that God, who does not, cannot, will not lie, fully intends that the promise be fulfilled. And there isn't the slightest possibility that it will fail. And so the covenant under which we live becomes a, major, a covenant of major importance because it's a covenant of major, major security and hope for every believer. It, I don't know how, how, all, how the rest of you feel, but I, I operate best almost in any environment. I operate best in my marriage when I feel secure with my wife. I operate best in my work when I feel secure in my work. I, and, and, and obviously, I, I would be most content in my life in Jesus Christ if I, if I was felt secure in him. And that is precisely what all of this New Testament teaching is designed to produce, is the, is the aura, the sense of security and worth.
it's it's both. I, I get very annoyed sometimes with the with the what uh, Robert Schuller calls the New Reformation of the 20th century, which is the Reformation of of uh, um, self-esteem. Not not that there's anything wrong with someone uh, feeling feeling knowing his worth, but it's got to be based upon something of value. You just for a person to uh, to be told that you are a human being and therefore you have a position of worth before everyone, including God, is simply not the truth. The truth is that if we are going to have worth before God, it's got to be based upon something of worth. If you're going to give something, if there's going to be something of value placed, someone is going to be, if you're going to be placed into something of value, there must be value there. It'd be like, it would be like, um, it almost is like, as a matter of fact, uh, the federal government producing paper money. And they produce paper money, and, and, you, and you, get, you get it by whatever means you do, by by your wages or by your profit or by inheritance or however it is that you come across paper money. Most of us don't come across a lot of it at one time, but however it is that it comes into your possession, its worth, is, 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 its value is only based upon the worth of the, of the party that produced it. And in this case, it would be the federal government of the United States. And, and your money is, is worth whatever it is that it's worth, only so long as there is faith in the people who produce it, because it's not backed with anything of value. It's only backed by the good faith and credit of the federal government. So we, we, we have our money, and we, it, it has worth to us only so long as the people who produced it are viewed as being, or the, or the, the government in our case, is viewed as being a, a, a government of faith, faithfulness, and of good credit. Well, the problem is a lot of people are starting to get antsy about their paper money now. and uh, People are just not as sure as they used to be about whether to sock it under the pillow or in the mattress or, or convert it into something that might have a long sustained worth like precious metals or real estate or, you know, that kind of thing to hedge against the, the inflationary spiral that is bound to come because when inflation comes, your money becomes worth less. Less and less until it becomes worthless, finally. I tell you that only because I want you to know that the promises that, that we have before us are based upon something of great worth. There's, there are a lot of things by which we, have, uh, we, we are secure in Christ. One is, obviously, the promise of God, which means nothing at all, nothing unless you know God. See, his promise means nothing to you or to anyone unless you know him. Because if, a, if a, an anonymous being makes a promise to you and you don't know him, you don't know what he's capable of, you don't know what his character is, then the promise means nothing. But for those of us who know him, the promise is life itself. We, we live off the promise. We feed off of the promises that God gives to us. Now, why is it in the sixth verse of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 8, it says he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises? How, how can God's promises be better one time than at another time? And the answer is God's promises themselves aren't better. It's the basis that he makes the promises that, that may be better. Better from, uh, we're into a matter of perception here and, 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 and ultimately into beyond perception into the real thing. Here, let me see if I can explain that. 
the Mosaic, or the, the Ten Commandments. Let's just let's confine ourselves to the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, uh, I believe, and the Bible teaches, uh, are God's moral law. They're valid any time. They have worth any time, and, and they have never been abrogated. But the promises that are, are better are not better because the other promises weren't morally correct. They were. God never operates immorally. They, they were morally good promises because they're based upon a morally good law. The reason they're better is because they're unconditional promises. They're based upon the same moral law, but they're given to us without our condition of having obeyed the law first before we receive the benefit of the promises. And, and therefore, we have these promises given to us without our having earned the reward of them. However, and there's a very big however here, which is what we need to understand, the, the, the product of, of the promises of God, the unconditional promises of God, is based upon, well, look at it this way. Under the Old Covenant, uh, the, uh, the Old Covenant was obeyed when it was obeyed out of, basically out of fear, out of genuine terror, that kind of fear. Uh, the people who obeyed those, those, that covenant, those, uh, those, those laws under that covenant, obeyed them to a God whom they, they had terror of. They knew that if they didn't, that they would be cut off. They would, they would be disinherited. They would become disenfranchised. That's a scary thing. It's, it's as scary as saying, if, if, if I do something wrong, my wife is going to leave me. Well, you know, if that were the case, uh, she would have left me a long time ago and many times ago. The, the, the point being that uh, uh, sometimes promises are made and should be made without a condition attached to them. At any rate, that's the way it was and is with God. So they, they obeyed out of fear, uh, but under the new covenant, uh, we obey out of a willing heart. And I, and, and I probably should refer you to the 10th verse of this text for that, and I, and I probably will stop here. 10th verse says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. And by the way, the house of Israel in the, is, is applied here in the, in the narrow and broad sense. I do believe that we need to take it in the broad sense here because you, have, you must understand that all who are in Christ Jesus are, are children of Abraham. We are children of the, of the faithful father Abraham, as the scripture calls him. He was the faithful one. And we are said to be his children. All who are of faith are children of Abraham. And so we, we, we take, the, when it talks about Israel here in this particular text, in this context, uh, we, we take that as the broadest application, meaning all who believe in God by faith and who are saved by faith are, are, are Israelites in the, in the spiritual sense of the word. We are, we are spiritual Jews. And, and I do believe that's what it means here. I, I, there may be a literal application to this as well, but we'll, we'll confine our thoughts to the to the spiritual one here. And so he says, I will put my laws into their minds, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. I would like to uh, just share with you a couple of thoughts. One of the great consternations of, of Christians that I've observed over many years and experienced my own self 
is sometimes trying to figure out what the will of God is for one's life. What, what does God want me to do? What should I do? And people spend considerable amount of energy in prayer asking God to show them what to do. But, but I, would like, I would like for you for a moment or two to fix uh, your, your attention upon a single concept uh, by which God gives considerable direction and reveals a considerable amount of himself to his people, and, and it's this. He said, I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. Well, when he said that, what, what this is saying and what this means is that my people who are called by my name will receive and have considerable enjoyment in obeying me as opposed to my people who were called by my name under the old covenant who didn't have considerable enjoyment in obeying me. They obeyed me out of terror and out of fear, out of simply a sense of duty rather than a sense of love, in the main. But my people today do quite the opposite because they have new minds and they have new hearts. And it's the new mind and the new heart that is designed to serve God. It's designed to serve God. It's like when God developed the specifications for the new mind and the new heart, the, 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 the central idea that he put into the, into the design was that it's designed, the new mind and the new heart is designed to obey me. And now, if, you, if you're looking and searching for God's will in your life and, and you've neglected God's moral, let's just say you've neglected God's moral will for your life. God's moral will is defined clearly enough in, in the Word of God. And so you neglected it. Some aspect of your life, uh, you have strayed away from God's moral will. God's moral will, for lack of a better way of defining it, is, let's say, based upon his moral law, the Ten Commandments. So you neglected that. Maybe just a part of it. Well, you'll God isn't going to reveal himself. He's not going to reveal what his will for your life is secondarily until you primarily come to the place where he has already told you what his will for your life is. His will for your life is to be a, a moral, righteous person based upon the moral character of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law. So if you want, God's, want to know what God's will is for your life, first examine your life to make sure that you are living your life according to his moral will. That's the first thing you need to do. You're not going to find out what his what the secondary will is, and that's what everybody wants to know. They never want to know. They don't want to know the first because they already know what that one's supposed to be. God's will for your life is to be, is is to conform to His moral will. Well, we already know that. That's that's not a secret. We we're more interested in what's the direction He has for my life. Where does He want to send me? What kind of career is He going to give me? And what kind of door will He open for me? That kind of thing is what people spend a lot of time agonizing about. I ain't going to tell you until first you're in conformity with his moral will. And, and I think probably secondarily, God, God says a considerable number of things in his word which are not commandments, but are principles. Uh, if a uh, man sows, he reaps. That's a principle. That means that it's not axiomatic. Sometimes... A man can sow some terrible seed and, and not reap the harvest for a long, long, long time. The Bible says that. But, 
but as a principle, it's a truth. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. Or train up a child in the way he should go, when he's old, he will not depart from that way. Well, that's not an axiom. That's not a commandment that says if you do it, you are absolutely going to receive this, the end result. But it's a principle, which means that if you do it, you have a reasonable expectation that that will happen. It's a reasonable expectation. So if you want to know what God's will is for your life, first you must, you must conform to his moral will, and then you must live your life on his principles. Living on biblical principles is an important aspect of finding out what it is God wants you to do. So, so and we have the minds. Listen, I'm, not, I'm telling you this stuff because God's people have the minds to do this. We, we're the only people who do have the minds to do this. You, you have his laws written in your heart, in your mind. He says, I will be your God under those conditions. So it's very important that we know that if we're going to find out what it is God wants for our lives, you know, what, what do I need to do to stop screwing up my life? Or what do I need to do to get my life straightened out? Or what direction do you want me to go in, Lord? We, we need first to conform to his moral will. And we should do it gladly. We're the only people who can do it gladly. And we ought, to, we ought to live our lives according to his principles. And we should do that gladly. Because we know that not only do we, should we do it gladly because, because we are a people with his heart, we should do it gladly even from a self-serving perspective. Because it's really good for us. In, in, in the last analysis, it's a very good thing for us to do. The, the, the results generally are salutary. If we live our lives according to biblical principles. And that means sometimes... It may be that that we may we may lose a little something because we're living our lives according to a biblical. We may give something or we may give up something because maybe we got it wrongly or you know a lot of there's a lot of ways that 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 we may for the moment feel like we may from the for the moment as a worldling might feel that we've lost something by not being clever and smart. On the other hand, if we live our life according to biblical principles. We'll always, always be able to sleep at night. That's salutary. We'll always be able to know that, or we should, we'll usually be able to know at least, that we have lived our lives according to God's principles. That's a good thing to do. And in, and in, in the main, if people live their lives according to biblical principles today, it would be a very nice world to live in. And you know, it really is interesting. From, my, from a historical point of view, in the United States of America, by and large, America ran its country and its business life and its social life in the main a little more than a little less than 100 years ago almost entirely upon biblical principles it was a pretty good country it was exactly better than pretty good it was an outstanding country insofar as a nation is concerned and it truly was it would have been it was correct to consider the united states at that time a christian nation because christian was everywhere because the principles were everywhere at any rate i want you to know that 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 being a a uh, child of the new covenant uh, carries with it great benefits and great advantages and he will be merciful to our unrighteousness he will not remember our sins and iniquities because he's given us a new covenant the old has passed away we are new creations in Christ